If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 8, jump into today. I want to thank, uh, as you're flipping there, let me thank uh, Joel uh, for preaching last week while I was on vacation. Grateful for you, uh, brother. And um, we've just kind of in advance, uh, Brian is preaching next month and Param is preaching in September. And so we're in rotation, or about once a month, we're going to try to continue to get other guys in this church who I believe have the gifting of teaching, uh, have a desire to teach, to come and be a part, because I want us to see more and more, even as a church family, um, that we don't sit under my preaching, so to speak. We sit under God's Word, no matter who is uh, faithfully teaching uh, God's Word. And so thank you, Joel, and thank you in advance even next week uh, when Brian uh, teaches uh, for us. John chapter 8, continuing in our series, and just really the theme for this year, uh, but it's also our series because this series lasts pretty much the whole year. Uh, In John chapter 8, we're just jumping into and continuing in our series of Encountering Jesus. We're trying to look at the desire and the goal is to look at different encounters where we see individuals encounter Jesus And what is the impact that has on their life? And then how can we even kind of put ourselves into the story and learn from these uh, situations as well? John chapter 8, actually beginning technically in verse, or chapter 7, verse 53, and then continuing through 8 through verse 11. Let's begin reading. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I want to give an important, I think, textual introduction that doesn't have to do with necessarily us understanding this particular text, but just talking about the text in general. If you're holding an English Standard Bible, which is the version I read through, you may be having a different version But chances are your version is going to have some type of footnote or even a parenthetical statement within the text that gives you something like this, which is what my Bible says. Right above chapter 8, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. What does that mean? Well, in... Uh, let's, let's give some quick background. For the New Testament to come together, it is brought together into Greek manuscripts. There's a Greek copy in which that this English translation um, was translated from. That original Greek copy is made up of uh, the best known 
understanding and scholars coming together and taking thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. What are manuscripts? Simply copies of copies. Whether that be Greek primarily, over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, then you add in Latin copies of those Greek, then you, in Syriac as well, um, Coptic copies that went down into the Egypt area, North Africa, and you take all of these from dating back to the earliest in the second century all the way up into uh, medieval times in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, all these copies ranging all these different times, you bring them together, well, guess what? They don't all exactly have the exact same thing. Why? Because textual errors. Now, what are textual errors? They can be just, if you're copying some, imagine your handwriting. They don't have the privilege of highlighting a screen, hitting Command C, and then going to the next page and hitting Command V for paste. They don't have that privilege. And so you had copyists who would write and write and write and write. The earliest manuscripts uh, didn't have spaces, and then when you get into the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, they turn into all capital letters without spaces, no paragraph indentions, no any type of grammar markings. And so imagine you're looking at these letters day after day for year after year. Well, guess what? Errors are going to happen. And so changes are going to happen, and things are going to happen. So the point is, you take all these manuscripts, and you look at something, and let's take uh, John chapter 1, just as an example. You have John chapter 1, and you've got thousands of manuscripts that have John chapter 1, and 95% of them say A, and 5% say B. Well, chances are that there's a good chance if there's an explanation to why B was there instead of A, you'll go, all right, that was probably an error, it's A. And so with good evidence, you can confidently say John chapter 1 was supposed to be A, whatever A was. And so that's what they do. This is known as textual criticism. What they do is they take and look at all these copies and all these different uh, evidences given to us, which there is a great confidence in what we have, and in that they come and they create what they believe is a master Greek copy. And that master Greek copy um, is, there's two of them that are used worldwide, just depending on really your preference. Um, And the two different Greek copies that are that are, once again, just combinations of all these manuscripts, um, have different reasons for why you choose this one versus this one. But here's an encouragement to you, is the differences have to do with footnotes, the difference has to do with how much notes they give you, but here's an encouragement. In the two main Greek copies that we use today, they're exactly the same text, which means that two different groups of people who've spent, I mean, these copies have been worked on for the last 50, 70, 80 years to get to where they are today. The two different groups have drawn the same conclusion that we believe that John chapter 1 says A and John chapter 2 says A or whatever it is. They have the exact same copies. Point is, there's a lot of confidence in the Greek text that we have. Okay, so that's how we get what we have. To get the English translation, you take 10 plus thousand manuscripts You read them, you study them, and then you go, what do you think this text says when all the examples that are given say this and this and this? We look at them, they go, we believe this original, the closest we can get to the original, it was this. You can have a lot of confidence in that. And here's where, now that we've said that, here's where we get to John chapter 8. When it says the earliest manuscripts do not include the text that we have today, what does that mean? What it means is, based off the evidences, that the earliest manuscripts... Now, why earliest important? Okay, so let me ask a question. If you have 
Um, let's just, I, I wasn't planning on doing this, so we're making an illustration up as we go. Okay. I write a love letter to my wife, all right? And, you know, it, it, it becomes something that people want. It was just a masterpiece. It's like, it's like Romeo and Juliet type. Well, that's bad. They die. That was a bad example. See, I probably should have prepped this one, right? All right, but let's just say I write something and be like, man, that's so good. And people take it and they make copies of it in different languages because they want it. And then 2,000 years from now, people have 10,000 copies of this letter that I've written. They don't have the original anymore because the original was 2,000 years ago. The paper's disappeared and it's gone. But they have copies of copies. Now, you discover two of those copies, one of which is about 200 years after the original, and the other is about 1,000 years after the original. Which one's more valuable? 200 years. Why? Because chances are, it's, it's like, what is, what is the telephone game where you say to someone, and they say to someone, and they say to someone, and chances are, by the time you get to the 10th, 20th person, it's just not even close. Well, that's exactly oftentimes how copies happen. So if you've got a copy from 1,000 years later, and a copy from two, three, four hundred years later, and this is exactly, taking that illustration, in the earliest Greek manuscripts, the earliest example we have of this text is a thousand years later, when we have hundreds of copies within the first few hundred years that do not have our text, which might cause you to draw the conclusion that this text was not in their original. Now, there's hours more that could be said about this, but here's, I want to draw a conclusion because I think it's important because as you read through John, there's only two times you see this in the entire New Testament where you see this, the earliest manuscripts do not have this, this and the ending of Mark. Uh, Here's my conclusion and we can talk about it, but it doesn't, well, let's just talk about it. My conclusion is based off the evidence is I would probably argue that this text was not in the original. Based off studies, based off evidences, based off the earliest manuscripts we have, good chance that this was not in the original. Now, oh my gosh, is my Bible crazy? No, your Bible's not crazy. We've got to remember what we have is 2,000 years of the best of the copies of the copies that we have to come together to bring our New Testament. And our desire is to be faithful. Our job in textual criticism, as scholars go and say, what exactly was in the original text? Our job there is to go, we want to find out what was in the original text, because that is the inerrant word of God. When we talk about God's word has no error, what we mean is, is the original copies were inspired and were exactly as God intended them to be, and there's good evidence to say that this chapter 8 right here at this section, was probably not in the earliest manuscripts. Okay, well then how did it get into our Bible? Got to remember, once again, the history, quickly, and this is way too much information maybe for you, or not enough, depending, is our earliest English translation is based off the King James Version. And the King James Version was translated off of six Greek manuscripts, all of which were in the later part, after 1000 A.D., Um, and those had this text in it. So imagine you have four or five, the the first English translation was 1611. From 1611 to now, you have had copies all have this text in it. So imagine, just simply based off tradition, this text has always been in the English Bible, and it's been within the last 50 years that we've 
been able to discover the Greek manuscripts that we have to determine there's a good chance that that first English translation that put this text in there, chances are they may have had it wrong. Now, what do we do with that? Here's what I want to do with that. Even though that I personally would argue, based off the evidence, that this was probably not in the original, I'm still going to preach it for two reasons. One, because all evidences, even in how we have early uh, church fathers talk about the text, the earliest copies we have of them talking about this story, speak to it as though it is still a true story. Remember John chapter 20, I want to read this again, John chapter 20, verse 30, our very first text for this series. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples which are not written in this book. Meaning there are a lot of other true things that happened. John just chose not to write them down. And chances are somewhere along the way, a copy or a story, because remember this was largely oral early on, um, somehow this story got put in a copy that began, became copied, 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 and eventually um, made it back into what was our original English translation. So one, I would argue that it's still a true story. All evidences would say probably wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, therefore likely was not in the original. But all evidences that we do have of it, for both from textual writings and from how people honored textual writings and how people talked about textual writings, the fact that it got in here was a good chance that it was still a true story that got talked about. And second, chances are if I'm wrong... I still, which I don't think I am, I still want to talk about the story because there's nothing in this story that theologically challenges anything else we know that is in Scripture. Does that make sense? So even if we look at the story and go, there's a good chance that it probably wasn't in the original, all right? We still believe it to be a true story, and it, does, it doesn't do anything to challenge theologically what we know to be in the Scripture, but instead supports it and still gives a helpful illustration of something that likely actually happened. And so with that being said, I want to teach this text, but I want you also to at least have some thought process around what does this mean for when my Bible says the earliest manuscripts probably didn't include this. Does that mean this story's a lie? No, not, necess- not necessarily, and most likely not. Um, but let's still, we want to be faithful and honor it. And so, once again, to conclude, and I'll be glad to answer any questions later on, but to conclude and summarize, I don't personally believe this was in the earliest manuscripts based off my finite study. Let me throw that in there. There are much wiser men and women who might differ with me and might be right. But based off my finite study, I would say I don't think it is, but I still think it's a worthwhile story um, because I believe it's a true story and it supports what we know to be in Scripture about the theology of Jesus and who he is. All right, so with that preface, let's dive into our sermon for tonight. Main point of today's sermon, and I'll pick it up a little bit, is Jesus forgives the undeserving. The main point, as we take away, what is this story? And why, let's say this wasn't in the original and someone inserted it later, why would they insert this story, this true story, into the text? One, because they believed it to be there, they believed it to be true, and they believe it fit with the theme of what was being talked about in John as we have different encounters with people who encountered Jesus and what would have been the main emphasis of writing this. And I would simply say that it, Jesus forgives the undeserving. Two points that I want to do to unpack that, to talk through that. First 
is Jesus silences our accusers. Jesus silences our accusers. Now, let's look at the story itself. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So we're having a Bible study, right? We're having a discipleship lesson. People are sitting around and asking Jesus questions. So the setting is people are asking questions. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her there in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law Moses commanded us is to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. So here's the setting. Got to get this. Got to understand this. Right? Jesus is teaching in the temple, in a holy place. The woman's caught in the act of adultery. Uh, I've heard um, pastors teach on this text, and they talk about how they brought uh, a, a naked woman into the temple. That's probably very unlikely. Scribes and Pharisees would have honored the temple and probably would have clothed her. So we don't, sometimes they want to paint that picture. I don't think that's true. But still, nonetheless, here's a woman who is brought in and is thrown down in guilt and in shame in front of everyone. Right? Adultery is one of the greatest sins that you can do. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. We talked about the Ten Commandments earlier in the year. And she is thrown down right there. And the scribes and the Pharisees are theologically accurate. We've got to get this. This, is, this takes away from the truth of the text if we don't understand that these guys are right. They're right in saying that, one, she was caught in adultery. And they're right in saying that Deuteronomy says that you are to stone her. Now, we can talk about other things in the story, like where's the man? He was caught in adultery too. You know, we want to talk about those things, and we can, we should talk about those things. And that actually highlights really what the Pharisees were after. They didn't care about this woman. They didn't care about the man. What they cared about was Jesus. And they wanted to find a way to accuse Jesus. They wanted to find a way to trick him. They accused her in order to get to Jesus. And they, they didn't really... You know, they and their sin and all their things. And actually, the best evidence that we could have is that stonings weren't common in the first century, even within Judaism. So this wasn't even a very common thing for them to do. But they found an obscure law, an obscure rule, theologically right, though, by the way. She was rightfully guilty of what she had done. There was nothing in the text to make us think that they were lying and accusing her of something that's not true. No, the text implies that, no, she was caught in adultery, and Jesus didn't you know, rebuke that or disagree with that. But the setting is you got a woman here in guilt and shame who is guilty of what is being accused of her. No doubt about it. But once again, the motivation for the scribes and the Pharisees were not pure motivation, but they were just simply trying to get at Jesus. When we think about Jesus forgives the undeserving, it's this woman we see from the story. We read the text. We know the end of the story. We know that Jesus forgives her. We know that she was undeserving of that forgiveness. But the first thing that he does is he silences the accusers. Now, this is another one, honestly, a personal reason of just, and this is, this is very subjective and just me trying to rationally think through this. But here's another one of the reasons to why, potentially, I don't know this was in the original. Because when it says that he knelt down and began to write, this seems to be that this writing was important. 
but John doesn't record for us what was written, and that's not necessarily evidence to say that John didn't write this, because if he would have written it, he would have told us, I don't know. But needless to say, Jesus begins to write something. Now, we can speculate, well, why do we not know what was written? We often try to speculate what was written. There's no way to know. The text doesn't give us a hint what was written. But I ask the question, why do we not know what is written? One, it's not important to the text because they would have told us potentially. Or two, and which is potentially also true, is that maybe what he wrote wasn't for anybody but the woman. We don't know. Some would say that he wrote and sat down and wrote maybe the sins of those accusers. So he was kind of putting a billboard up in front of them by writing their sins, maybe. Text doesn't tell us that. Text doesn't tell us anything other than that we don't know what was written. But I do like to think, and here's one thing I probably am pretty confident of, that if anybody could see what was written, it was this woman. And so once again, we don't know what was written, but I do like to think, and I'm would be fairly confident that he knelt down beside her and began to write something. And maybe it was a message for her, maybe it was a message for others, we don't know. But he begins this process of addressing the accusations that were against him. He gets down, he writes something, and he stands up. And as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground... But when they heard it, they went one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Some would argue, once again, we're just trying to unpack the text. We want to ask good questions so we can understand, what does this mean? Some would argue that he sat down and whatever he wrote caused them to leave. But the text says that what he said caused them to leave. So we don't know, once again, what was written, but his writing was important. And in one way or another, his sit, him getting down and him writing for her to see or for others to see, in that act, he was doing two things. First, he was silencing the accusers. When we begin to think about the idea of silencing accusers in this story, and even if we're not careful, we can take this story to say that no one has a right to give any accusation towards me. All right. I don't think that's the main point of the text, but I do think a point of the text is that Jesus is silencing the accusers. We got to get this. They were not lying against her. They were telling the truth about her. She was an adulterer. And scripture says that because of that sin, she deserved to die. And then the religious leaders took that opportunity to not caring about her having no care for her, just using her as a pawn for their religious duties out to get Jesus, Jesus must address the accusations. Now, as we begin to think about how this applies to us, and when we think about Jesus forgives the undeserving, which is you and me and is this woman that is right here before him and is the scribes and the Pharisees. Everybody in the story is undeserving. When we begin to think about how this applies to us, we begin to think about... Texts that talk about how Satan's a great accuser and how Hebrew says that Jesus advocates on our behalf. He stands before the Father and advocates. And what does that advocating look like? It looks like something to the nature of they do not have to die because I died for them. That, that when you look at their sin, that you don't have to because look at me, I have bore their sin for them. 
what he's doing is he's silencing the accusations of the enemy. Guys, we know, and we got to get this too, when we understand that the Scripture says that Satan's out to still kill and destroy us, that that's a true statement, and usually what Satan says about us, at least as it relates to sin, is true. And when we talk about silencing accusers, I, I want, I, as, as I was preparing for this, I want to do my best to say this, but I really feel like the Spirit of God was wanting me, want to, wants me to say this clearly. Jesus does not silence the accusers because they are wrong. He silenced the accusers because they're no longer right. Did you hear the difference? This is something I wrote down because I think you and I need to hear this. Jesus does not eventually forgive her and say, you are no longer guilty because she was never guilty to begin with. But because of his forgiveness, she is no longer guilty. Why is that important? Is because you have had people say things about you and have spoken guilt and shame and negative things over your life that may have been true, but are no longer true in Jesus. You may have had a parent that just spoke negativity over you, may have said things to you that you are unworthy or you disappoint or you are not loved. And maybe you've had a worker or someone else who have just spoken negativity over you. And it's real cheap for me to say, oh, none of those things are ever true. But, but sometimes people say things that are true about us. And actually, those are often things that hurt the most. Because maybe at one point they were true. Maybe at one point you were an adulterer. Or maybe at one point you were a murderer. Or maybe at one point you were some of these things. Maybe at one point you felt this or you felt that. And maybe someone spoke something over you. And you just, it just hit home and it became an identity of you. When we talk about in this text that Jesus silences the accusers, he doesn't silence them by saying, you're all lying, you're wrong, she's not guilty, leave her alone, but instead addresses her guilt. And in the process of addressing her accusers, he takes away the accusation because he changes who she is in that moment. And you need to hear me say, when Jesus forgives the undeserving, truth number two comes along, and that Jesus pardons our guilt. And because Jesus is able, and he is the one and only, because he is the one who is without sin, pardons her guilt, he, in the process, is silencing and taking the power away from them to accuse her of something that is true, because it's no longer true. Why? She's guilty of adultery. She deserves to die. True. But I, Jesus, who have no sin, forgive her and pardon her. Therefore, she is no longer that thing that you just said. He silences the accusation because he changes who she is. Guys, Christianity, when we talk about statements of... And and I want want to just... Say this. I don't. I don't. I want to be. I want to be honest and be careful. But you and I have had a lot of things spoken over us that are that's like poison into our lives. And sometimes maybe those things were true. And sometimes we draw the conclusion because those things were true. That's just who I am forever. 
And here's the beauty of Jesus. Jesus isn't great because he comes in and says, you're not guilty because you never were guilty, therefore live like you're not guilty. But he says, no, you were guilty. That's exactly who you were. You deserve to die, but because I love you, you are no longer those things. I change who you are. And so when we talk about that, 2 Corinthians 3, I said it earlier, that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from our bondage, freedom from our guilt. It's not because we were never in bondage and we just think we are, but someone comes along and says, you're not really in bondage, go live happy. No, 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 it's recognizing that's exactly who we are. That this woman in this moment is guilty of what she has done and she does deserve to die, but Jesus and his love for her and Jesus and his love for you comes along and says, that thing, that accusation about you may have been true, but in me, I change it because I pardon it, I set you free, and it's no longer who you are. Guys, we need to hear this. That whole, that whole saying, and I, don't, I may not get it right, but the whole like sticks and stones break bones, but words can never hurt me. No, people have said some incredibly mean and maybe at times true things about you that really hurt, but that are no longer true. They may have once been true, but are no longer true because of Jesus. And you and I and our identity and our freedom is not based on the fact that what people say about us is true or not true, but about what Jesus says about us is true. And the beauty of this story, because there's a lot that could be said about this story, but the beauty of this story is a picture, even though we don't know what Jesus said, but there, he says something, he writes something to cause them to drop their stones and to walk away. He silences the accusers, and then he pardons her guilt. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground, verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. When we begin to think about Jesus forgives the undeserving, I think it's important for us, it's a healthy way thing for us to insert ourselves into this, the characters of the story. And the truth is, all of us will probably find ourselves at time to be the woman in the story, the woman caught in adultery, caught red-handed in our sin. And at times, we find ourselves being the scribes and Pharisees. And so the question for you is, if you are the scribes and the Pharisees, the challenge is, is not, scribes and Pharisees are rightfully, as our teachers and as our people, are rightfully to call people and recognize sin and call them to faithfulness. Now, that's not what they do here. They call out sin in order to condemn and that's not to say that we in the church are not to call out sin. We're just not to call out to condemn it. We're call out in order to point people to Jesus so that they can have freedom from it. Big difference. So don't read this story and say, scribes and Pharisees, that no one should ever call out sin. No, we should, but the, it's the motivation. And so me as a pastor, when I get up and I preach God's word, I'm, I'm faithfully calling out sin, but never for the goal of condemning, but for the sake of pointing people to Jesus. But then second... Most of us, at least, are easier to relate, I think, with a woman caught in adultery. Maybe because, actually, adultery is the sin. 
that you struggle with or have struggled with, or maybe it's something completely different. But the point is, I do want us all to see ourselves as in both of these are people who are undeserving of God's forgiveness, but specifically the woman God forgives. Jesus in this moment loves on her and forgives her. He is the only one who is without sin. He is the only one able to condemn her, and he chooses to condemn himself instead of her. Got to get this. Her sin in the law of God, because of God is holy, someone must die. And Jesus says, I no longer condemn you. Why? Because he knew he would go to the cross for her, and he would die in her place. She deserved to die. And her sin brought about a consequence of death. But in forgiveness, Jesus says, I'll take that sin for you so you never have to. And he can offer forgiveness in place. But understand, he pardons her and says, go and sin no more. When we often think about the Christian faith, sometimes there's this attitude that happens where, oh, God's gracious, God forgives me, therefore, you know, I'm, I'll try not to sin, but if I do, it's no big deal because God will forgive me. And we, we treat sin like it's no big deal because of God's forgiveness. That's a problem. But I want you to do your best. Imagine if you were the woman in this story. Literally deserved to die. Rightfully so, should have died. And God says, Jesus in this moment said, hey, silence the accusers offers her a pardon of forgiveness and literally gives her her life back and then ask one thing of her. Go and walk faithfully. Go and sin no more. Meaning, don't do this again. And I imagine in that moment, grace instead of condemnation did something in her heart that I would imagine, we don't know, but if it was me in that story, I don't think I would have gotten that close to the fire again. I would have stayed away. I think about as a parent, ooh, it's time to go. I think about um, as a parent, when I get onto my kids, I'm like, don't do that again. Like, don't do that again. <laughs> How many times have we said that? Don't do that again. Don't do that again. Don't do that again. But this is literally what Jesus says in this moment. But because I really believe because of his saving grace, I imagine there's a heart change in this woman where she recognizes and owes Jesus her life and he calls her to faithful obedience. Guys, when we think about Jesus' forgiveness of us of undeserving, praise be to God to that. And let's walk in that freedom. But part of walking in that freedom is going and sinning no more. It's saying that, hey, I, I, I understand what Jesus has done. And I want to surrender my life. As Sam said, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I want to surrender my life to Jesus. We talk about a new hope as living surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And what that means is, very simply, go and sin no more. And so, yes, as we want to be grace people who talk about God's forgiveness of our life, there's still the challenge to walk in that forgiveness. Let's never miss that this woman did not earn her forgiveness. It was freely given to her with a call and an invitation and a challenge to go and sin no more. So here's the challenge to you tonight. One, would you see that you're undeserving of God's forgiveness, but he freely gives it anyways? Church family, maybe you need a rest here tonight. And I can tell you, I know I need a rest here. This week, as I've been, man, I'm just grateful for vacation. Had a lot of time in a 100-degree temperature to sit outside in a cool breeze. You get a, you get a cool breeze every once in a while in the south. But I did. I sat outside 
just in the quiet, in the trees. Um, we pulled ticks off of all our kids this week because we were out in the woods. I know the guy who had Lyme's disease, that freaks him out a little bit. But the point is, is we got away from the city, we got away from technology. And one of the things as I did that this week and just reflected was this, is I'm undeserving of God's grace and I'm so grateful for his forgiveness. Maybe we need to rest there tonight. But then second, let us also be a people who out of appreciation for his grace, let us be a people who go, I will walk faithfully with you and I will go and sin no more. Now, once we do, if we do, we understand that God's grace is still there for us. But we do not take that for granted. But like this woman, I can imagine, like this woman, that she was out of gratitude for grace, there was a heart change that took place in her life. Would you bow with me as we reflect on those truths? Jesus, we thank you. And as we kind of just even move into this time of just reflection and worship, we don't want to rush past this moment, Jesus, because we know, Spirit of God, we need you. In the same way as this woman was thrown before Jesus, Jesus knelt down and wrote something that for her to see. She probably, he even, chances are, wrote knelt down right in front of her. We don't know what she said, but either way, he knelt down and he loved on her. God, in a very same way, we're asking for you to kneel down and love on us in this room tonight. I pray that you would silence the accusations that people have said about us over the years, because in you, they're not true. I pray, Spirit of God, you do a healing in people's hearts when they think about the things that have been spoken over them, the death, the destruction, even the condemnation and the guilt that might have actually been true even. In you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning those accusations are no longer true. And I pray, Spirit of God, you bring healing into people's hearts and minds based off that truth right there. There's no merit to those accusations anymore because you've changed who we are. So Jesus, would you kneel down? Would you pour out your forgiveness in our hearts? Even for the believer and the non-believer in the room, the believer in here who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, let us be reminded of that grace. Let us be reminded that you forgave us for all eternity and let us go and sin no more. Maybe for the person in the room who would, whether this is your first time in church or a thousandth time in church, but yet you would go, you know what? I don't know that I've ever really been forgiven and my identity and my life's been changed by Jesus. Might you just simply in faith bow before him. And maybe you're the woman. You're before Jesus and you are guilty of your sin. But Jesus is there not to condemn you, but to offer forgiveness to you. Would you call out to him and say, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? Forgive me of my sin. And hear him ask the question, who is here to condemn you?
And might you see that no one is here to condemn you. Jesus will say, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And might you rest in the forgiveness that is found in Jesus because Jesus forgives the undeserving. That is you, that is me. And so Jesus, we just ask that you would pour out your grace. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.